As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen recovered from an 11 second pit stop to catch and pass Lewis Hamilton to claim his 13th win of the season on a day Red Bull sealed the Constructors' Championship. But did Mercedes miss the opportunity it's been waiting for to grab that elusive 2022 race win? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer that question and many more are Scott Mitchell Malm and Mark Hughes. Scott Austin, it's great, isn't it? This is the proper US Grand Prix. Yeah, it is. I uh, I, I love this race. Uh, I, I love the circuit. I I love what they put on around the circuit as well. I think the um, the facility here is is excellent. I love the city and um, everything that the that is really going on there. There's parts of it that massively embrace the race, and then there's parts of it that are just damn fun to, to just to be in irrespective of whether you're here for a grand prix or not so yeah this is this is this is a, a proper u.s grand prix it is absolutely worthy of the name the thing i like about this one mark is the fact that it feels like a more organic race yes it's picked up because of all the interest in the wider world of f1 in the u.s drive to survive and all that but it was already an event that had its own identity and feel going right back to that first year we were here back in 2012 yeah, absolutely. What the um, what the the sort of Netflix generation I think is is brought is um, a very welcome thing is that we, because before that happened, there was a concern that with the Mexican Grand Prix coming and this being relatively close to the Mexican border, that the 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 future might put the future of this one at risk, and that that would have been really really sad. But that's that's long gone as a as a, a worry because it's just. Um, you know, fantastically successful as well as being wonderfully entertaining. Yeah, and the thing I just like about it, it's got its own identity. I think if you want to go to a US race of the three that we'll have next year, of course, with Las Vegas being added to Miami, this is the one. Well, to be honest, I think if you're listening to this podcast, I think this is the only one of the three races you'll be able to to afford to go to. I can't imagine the people that can afford to go to the Miami and Las Vegas races next year. Are, um, I, I can't imagine we'd have too many um, massive VIP celebrities listening to this. Not that I don't appreciate our, our audience. I just think our audience are good, honest, hardworking people, not absolute megabucks millionaires. Well, there we go. I'm sure you've uh, you've insulted some people there with your statement. But yeah, this is this is the race for proper F1 fans. Let's put it that way. Well, Mark, because it's a race for proper fans, let's talk about the race itself rather than the periphery. So it looked like it was going to be a straightforward win for Max Verstappen after he jumped into the lead at the start. But the wheel gun failure that resulted in an 11-second pit stop gave an opportunity to Lewis Hamilton. Verstappen retook that lead with only seven laps to go. So was there a way for Hamilton to win this one? Ultimately, no. Um, interestingly, the numbers say that Hamilton was going to take the lead anyway, even without um, the wheel gun delayed for stop and stop, because he was out of rate. The the, the rear tyres had, had gone 
on Verstappen's car and his in-lap pace wasn't enough to counter the out-lap pace of Lewis on his fresh tyres. So Verstappen was going to probably come out just behind Lewis by probably less than a second, um, which you would assume would then have led to Max retaking the lead under DRS down to turn 12, a bit like what uh, Sergio Perez did when George Russell came out ahead of him. Um, that's just a little sort of incidental, but in terms of... Uh, could they have, uh, have, have, have taken full opportunity, any fuller opportunity than they did? No, I, I don't think they could. They they just took advantage of a little brief window with the safety car had given them where, that had wiped out the five-second lead Verstappen had built up up to that point, just coming up to the second pit stops. Um, at, in combination with that, at a time that Verstappen's tyres were going away, so ordinarily, if Verstappen's tyres had been going away, but he had a five-second cushion, it wouldn't have mattered. But it, it, it's all of a sudden it did. Um, but with the reset of the the, the, the fresh tyres, um, it, it was back to normal with, with the Red Bull significantly faster. It probably had about four-tenths on the Mercedes realistically. Um, and so, yes, with uh, Max, he first had to find his way past Leclerc's Ferrari, of course. Um, but once he'd done that, um, it was just a matter of uh, chasing it down. And Lewis was pushing like crazy in a car that was uh, very difficult in the slow corners. And uh, eventually it just it refused to be driven like that any for any longer. And he lost a big chunk of time on a couple of consecutive laps with lockups. And that pretty much decided it. And Max was able to sail past under DRS with a 40-kilometer difference um, into in turn 12 with three laps to go. I think it's one of those things that you ask if there's ways to win, but if you don't have the pace of the car and there's a straight line speed disadvantage, particularly with the DRS, what what can you do? What did you think, Scott? Could Lewis have delayed the inevitable any longer? Um, well, when when the race we we were watching it it live and watched back a couple of the replays at first, I thought that Lewis had given up the position too easily. Um, he didn't really cover Verstappen into turn 12 and it was only when Max made the move, Lewis actually, if anything, he moves just slightly in the braking zone, um, which is a bit of a no-no normally, but he didn't didn't do anything ridiculous. Um, and that seemed to be the extent of his defence, which considering he then obviously came back at Verstappen and, and stuck with him for a few laps, so therefore ha- had a bit of pace to, to sort of fight him. I thought it was slightly weird that, that Lewis just left the door open, um, but... They obviously looked into it a little bit more and there were two factors that I think were easy to overlook because you you can't see it from the outside. You you just see the effect of it. One, um, it sounded like the 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 bouncing down down the straight, because we know that this circuit is notoriously bounce is notoriously bumpy and these cars are, are really stiff and probably the Merc is among the absolute stiffest. Um the mirrors were were vibrating so much that by the end of the straight, Lewis actually couldn't see anything in his mirrors. So he had no idea that, that Max had got that close and was, was making the move. And I think the other thing that contributed to that is that Max had, you know, that 40 odd kilometer an hour overspeed because of Hamilton derating and the rebel being quick in a straight line and in the toe and with the DRS. So I think those two factors combined to make, it explained why, Lewis wasn't covering a move because I, I don't think he I did I literally think he literally couldn't see it coming. I think overall it shows that Mercedes have made progress with this car, but this really Mark was just another one to add to those few races we've had this year where there's been a flirtation with victory for Mercedes when circumstances have gone for it. But the fact that quite a few circumstances helped here, Sainz out, Leclerc grid penalty. Verstappen having his time delay, and still there wasn't really a way to win it. It tells you mm. how big that assist needs to be for Merck yeah. to be able to win. All those plus a sa- an opportunity safety, opportunity time safety car, and still it wasn't quite enough. So yeah, yeah absolutely, and they, they, that's that's about the size of it, really. The 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 gap to the Red Bull was a little bit narrower than it, 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 the average, um, but it ultimately, yeah, it 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 should normally you'd normally expect that deficit to translate into fifth and sixth on the grid and you know for you to be fifth and sixth in the race when Verstappen had his problems and therefore you wouldn't be to be a beneficiary um it's a lot of things all came together and it it just gave a little suggestion of 
what it might look like if if we had a fully competitive Merc, but it was a misleading picture. It's a bit of a mirage. And the fact that this is a bumpy circuit, which doesn't play to the strengths of the car, I think it's gently encouraging for mm. Mercedes. It's not transformative, but it they were at least able to make it interesting uh, through to the, the closing stages. But Scott, it was no surprise that Red Bull sealed the Constructors' Championship crown. That's been inevitable for ages. It's his first Constructors' title since 2013. But it did become far more than that, given Red Bull co-founder Dietrich Mateschitz passed away during this race weekend. So the timing couldn't really have been more appropriate, could it? Uh, no, it was um, it, it was it was a very fitting way to to remember uh, Matuschitz and uh, honor his life and his his legacy. Um, obviously, it's a it, it's sad. We we got the news bef- just before qualifying, so unfortunately, he wasn't able to, to 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 be around to witness the the constructors' title. But he was a, he was obviously able to to see Max become a, a two time world champion. Um, and he he would have he he would have known that that the team was on course to, to 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 win that double and with a good chance of finishing first and second in the drivers' championship as well, which Red Bull's never done before, has it? Weber never finished second, did he? In the Vettel years, so um, yeah, uh, the the timing of it, um, one of the factors that was obviously Red Bull would much much rather it had absolutely no distraction at all given the, the the nature of it but it moved the narrative this weekend away from something more controversial we've obviously came into this weekend with the backdrop of the 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 budget cap breach and, and what would happen to Red Bull there were negotiations through the weekend between Rebel and the FIA but that all got paused basically in, in the wake of Matchitz's his, his death and and there was also basically a, a truce on what was quite a bitter war of words developing between the rival teams. Um, for example, Mercedes didn't want to talk about politics or anything like that in Toto Wolff's media sessions out of, out of respect. Um, it just shifted the narrative onto the on-track stuff and, and, and honouring Mataschitz, which meant that probably for the first time in a couple of Grand Prix, Red Bull was able to win a race without there being a, a massive cloud around it. Politically speaking, obviously this, this was very sad. And I, I feel like all of the tributes that we heard from rebel personnel past and present this weekend they were they were very very heartfelt whatever people's opinion might be about the the rebel f1 organization at the moment that they have their critics some criticisms are valid some of them are over the top it's very difficult to find some of a bad word to say about matterships so he had a huge impact on on formula one and those that knew him only really have kind words to say about him you have to say, Mark, he's been profoundly influential in shaping modern mm. F1. And in fact, you don't even really need to caveat it as modern mm. F1. He's up there with one of the most influential people in, in Grand Prix history, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. And if you look at all, and even even outside of motor racing, he's, I mean, he's in all sorts of sports and activities. But yes, I mean, in terms of not just two Grand Prix teams, but you know, two, you, you've got all the junior driver programs they got all the, the 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 i think eight drivers on the on the current grid as well as all all of those who've passed through and got on to other things um you know owing their careers to this guy and this guy's vision of how he wanted to market his you know his drinks company and a, um, amazing vision and um full on commitment and enthusiasm that he um that that he did all this with and there was you know there's no holding back and he, he of course he Give us the uh, Austrian Grand Prix back after a, a long absence, which is a very welcome thing. A beautiful circuit that he'd, you know, taken over and uh, brought back up to standards. But you just he's done so much, and um, you know, for for this to be the the effort of a one one guy is is quite remarkable, really. And um, you could liken his influence in in the sport to that of in previous decades of. Um, Marlborough, but obviously the, with with the without the you know the the t- tobacco connotations, um, but it was it's as pervasive as that. It's in terms of how many categories it's involved in and and how many drivers' careers are is responsible for. I was on the Amp Fast and Loose show after the race, and one of the things I mentioned on on there was just to try and put it into context was I can't think of a single individual who shaped F one more other than perhaps Bernie, but certainly no one has 
left such an imprint on Formula One with such little profile. I feel like that's yeah. the that's the big point of distinction is everybody knows Bernie and everybody knows the impact he made on Formula One. But outside of our little bubble, yeah. how many people have heard of Matt Schitt's? Yeah, Red Bull has this huge profile, but the guy himself, hardly any. Exactly. That's, how he, that's exactly how he wanted it. But the thing that's really positive about him is... I think he was in F1 for the right reasons. Now, you can talk about the way Red Bull do things, etc., and some people like it, some people don't, or whatever. But at heart, he just loved yeah. racing, and that was what it was. It was a, it was a passion project for yeah. him, hugely successful. And I think that's something that you have to really like about him. I always remember seeing him at the Austrian Grand Prix, obviously his race, his area, his part of the world, when Max Verstappen won it for the first time for Red Bull in 2018, and he was just sort of charging across the paddock, just, just a guy who was delighted. Mm. And if you'd said to someone, I'll oh, pick out the billionaire person who owns all this, they wouldn't have picked him out because he didn't have the air of that. And I mean that in a positive way. He seemed part of it, even though he's reclusive and didn't like the limelight. When he was there, he just looked like a guy who was having a good time. I quite like that part of the Red Bull tribute uh, today was that all the team members were wearing jeans instead of the normal team trousers, which I thought was quite a nice touch. And playing the Rolling Stones um, music as well, because that was a big thing of his. I'm pretty sure when I saw him in Austria, I mentioned he had jeans and his uh, his kind of suede jacket on. That was mm. his uh, and his check shirt as well. He like he like I've got a check shirt on in tribute to Matty Schitt's. I could <laughs> I could claim, although I think that's uh, more coincidence. But yeah, I think it's it's a good that among all of the negativity there's been about Red Bull, some of it earned, some of it overblown. To actually remember that this is a a company that's done a lot in F1, a lot for F1, and achieved a lot. And celebrate a little bit Matashitz's contribution, I think, is uh, is appropriate. Congratulations to everyone at Red Bull Racing for the Drivers and Constructors Championship double. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, let's talk Ferrari now, Mark. Given Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc were first and second in qualifying, to come away with just a third place for Leclerc, sort of another disappointment, isn't it? How hard done by was Sainz at the first corner? A little bit. Um, it was a little bit unfortunate and that it was just, he was sort of pincered, but he was also partly responsible. He, once he'd lost the place to Verstappen off the line and into the corner, um, and he had the, the Mercedes behind him looking to take advantage of, you know, any um, impeding of his progress by Verstappen, um, Carlos cut across very sharply, really, um, and shouldn't really have been surprised that there was a car there already. So, uh, yeah, I think he has to take some of the blame for that. It's an element of risk, isn't it? It wasn't outrageous or mm. stupid or anything. You just have to take that gamble. And George Russell was quite happy to say after he hold, held up his hands, he said, yeah, my fault, because he had the little lock-up. He went a bit mm. deeper than he wanted. But I did also ask him, well, if, if Carlos had stayed where he was, do you think you'd have made it around okay? And he was, he was yeah, we'd have had no, no problem with it. So... It's that predominantly to blame thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think a I think a five second penalty for Russell was was fine for that, but at the same time, slightly surprised. Not again, not because of, this isn't because I I think George wasn't to blame, but I was surprised that it was met of a penalty given we normally have a degree of leniency on the opening lap, and this was the first corner at a track with a first corner that encourages cars to go you know two three you can probably go four five wide actually into turn one few lines through it there was the you know the trajectory of the ferrari does have an impact on the ultimate trajectory of the the mercedes or where it ends up mid corner so there were quite a few factors there that i thought played into the usual leniency we see on um, on the first lap but I, I suspect it was the lock up that that made the difference i'm not saying it should have done but i do wonder well, if that was the thing that did, didn't that doom gasly last year in turkey there, there was do, do you remember was that, that the gasly alonso yeah it was really silly it was like it was just absolutely no way shape or form did it meet the criteria for for that to be a penalty and yet he got one anyway so every now and again we we do see this and on the on the first corner i i don't i don't mind them blaming george for it i do think he was predominantly to blame the 5 second penalty's fine it was just uh, just it, it it felt like you could have argued it as, um, yeah, it's his fault, but no penalty. Yeah, I think that's fair. And we should say in Science's case, he didn't make the 
greatest of starts. He was behind by the by the first corner. So a small part he put himself in in that position by not making a, a better start. Although this very much is a track where starting second can be a pretty good thing. Quite often, in fact, the majority of the time, I think recently, whoever's been second has been ahead at that first corner. But how about Charles Leclerc, Mark? He had a, a good, strong race, didn't he, from down the grid? The 10-place grid penalty, he was second fastest in qualifying. So quite a lot of work to do and came out with third place. He did. And what was very encouraging for Ferrari about Leclerc's race was how long he was able to go on the tyres. And since the summer break, really, um, or certainly since Hungarian Grand Prix even, um, Ferrari have struggled to get good tyre performance on the race for whatever reason. And here, although they didn't change the car here, they were really good on the tyres at a circuit that's very, very demanding of them. It was it was actually better on the tyres in that first stint than either the Red Bull or the Mercedes. Um, and that's, that's highly unusual. And so, yeah, his tyres dropped off a little bit in that last stint, which was why Max was able to repass him after his pit stop delay. But um, I think that was more of a how hard Leclerc had, had pushed when he was coming out. Um, but I think, yeah, it was very encouraging to see that that it could combine the pace with, with the good stint length. And that's the first time we've seen that in the second half of the season, really. That means it probably has to go down as, as a quietly positive weekend for yeah. Ferrari overall. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think um, the results fairly modest given you know the, the performance in qualifying. But again, in their, their, their front row, well, not the front row because they didn't start on the front row, but their first and second fastest times in qualifying was also to do with tyre usage. It had better tyre usage than the Red Bull that could more easily fire, fire it up and um, fire the front tyres up in particular but without the um, the usual concomitant penalty of that in the race. Yeah, and so I think that's mission accomplished in terms of that aim to finish the season well for them for, for this race. Obviously, it's not a great result in terms of the, the wider scope of the season, but uh, pretty positive for them. We should mention Sergio Perez had a relatively quiet run to fourth. He had that bit of front wing damage, didn't he, Scott, from uh, the contact with, with Bottas early on. So a quiet race for, for Perez, but he did have that that little bit of an area disadvantage with the front wing because it wasn't changed at any point in the race. Yeah, um, and I thought he did a, he did a good job to to make sure he was ahead of, of Russell. I think in the end, the um, the pass, uh, what, what, which pit stop was it when he got, got back ahead of... Um Go ahead of Russell because they rejoined, didn't he? And, and Russell briefly got Russell got rejoined ahead. ahead, and then he retook up down at turn twelve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I thought that I, I thought the Paris did a good job to make sure he got in front. But as it turns out, Russell was struggling so much with his own fr- uh, front wing damage that I think it was absolutely inevitable that the Paris was going to comfortably beat the the second Mercedes. Um, and yeah, it, it was ended up being a quiet performance uh, from from him. I thought um, the complaint was in the, the fight with Leclerc that we had the complaint over the radio about him going off track and passing him, which I just thought was 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 wafer, a wafer-thin claim from Perez. So while, while this was a, yeah, a, a quiet and less uh, punchy performance than we've, we've seen at other races... Um, and a slightly muted contribution to Red Bull's day of days clinching the Constructors' Championship. You've only got to look at the job he's done over the course of this year as the support act of Verstappen in in, in that car. He has more than played his part in in Red Bull winning this um, Constructors' Championship. It's not like he's got like 25-30% of Verstappen's total or anything like that. So grand scheme of things, Perez has done a really good job this year as the the, the number two driver at Red Bull. He's, He's done what he was signed to do but this was just one of those weekends where he was just a just always a little bit at arm's length basically from that lead battle and with George Russell in fifth I was quite pleased after the race because he was asked about getting the fastest lap point because he had the pit stop and he just described the fastest lap point as unnecessary just said well you just get new tyres just because you're in the position it's situational I like that because that agrees with my perspective and uh, on things so uh, I'll just amplify him uh, him agreeing with me on <laughs> on that one well let's catch up on Grid Rival. Now, Grid Rival is the fancy motorsport game where you can take us at the race on in our own league. A solid but unspectacular 893 points for me this week, Scott, partly thanks to compromises in my team caused by being locked out of a few big names and my gamble on Mick Schumacher as double points talent driver. Enough to beat you? No, nowhere near. I've um, I've uh, crashed through the 
thousand point barrier for the for the second time. So very very happy with my week. I think I outscored the uh, the the people that are leading our leading our league as well. So I had a I had a lovely mix. I had Verstappen and and, and Hamilton for starters. Um, I had uh, Vettel as my talent driver, um, and then I had I think uh, did I have Norris and Magnussen as well, and I had Alpine as my as my team. So my my only concern is I. I would imagine the topic we will get onto yeah, very, very shortly. I wonder if Alonso's post-race penalty is going to cost me a little bit there. But when I che- when when I checked before there were any post-race amendments, I was on a four-figure sum for the uh, for for this week. So very, very happy and very proud of myself. I'm very smug because I'm absolutely destroying you now. Actually, we should say we, this is caveated because we've only just had those penalties. So some of these details might change in, in grid rival, but we can, we can only do it as uh, as it is now. The top score for the United States Grand Prix on that basis was these tyres are dead with 1,107, thanks to a team of Leclerc, Norris, Verstappen, Hamilton, Vettel and Mercedes. So that's not going to be affected by the penalties, I would say. So probably we'll stay on top. But just a narrow win, only four points ahead of Shippo is a legend. And overall... In that battle, we've got a change of lead. Raniel Ricciardo has moved into the lead, just three points ahead of Jackie, 789-58-103. And that battle is definitely going all the way down to the last lap in Abu Dhabi. So make sure you click on the link in the episode description, sign up for Grid Rival. There's only three races to go this season, but get a feel for the game so you can go into next season in good form. Right, Scott, the battle for best of the rest behind the big three provided loads of action in this race. Lando Norris ended up coming through to win that fight in sixth place, a very well-executed drive from him. But how surprised were you to see Fernando Alonso finishing seventh on the road? And we'll come back to that particular qualifier in a bit after being launched into the wall by contact with Lance Stroll. Oh, I was totally surprised. I shouldn't be because he's sort of done this before, hasn't he, in the Azerbaijan Grand Prix a few years ago. But um, there's a... There was a comment Alonso made a couple of races ago about the Alpine, which is just it seems to be able to bounce off other cars and actually survive. He said today, uh, if you hit an Alpine, you DNF. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there is something about it. I'm not. I, I wouldn't like to suggest that that means that the drivers take needless risks with it. But it's, it's they they apart as, and we'll come to this again shortly. But apart from the um, apart from the wing mirrors, they build them really really strong in Endstone. So I I was I was genuinely surprised to see that he was able to. To continue, I felt for sure that that was going to have some kind of terminal damage on it. So continuing was a, a big surprise to me. The fact that he was then able to Alonso it into well into the top ten was just another bit. Once well, once it was able to continue, I just thought, well, who knows what he's going to do with this? I must admit, I can't think of a car having that kind of impact and continuing a relatively unabated speed in in a race in the past. Yes, sometimes you see contacts and that kind of thing, but that, that was big. But there's a question here from Dan Elliott from the Race Members Club. Of course, the Race Members Club can ask us questions in our post-race podcast. Just uh, head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen and click on Join the Race for more information on that. But Danny Elliott's question is, as we know, this sport is partly a battle to reduce weight and have the required weight in the right places. With this in mind, why does the Alpine suspension have enough play and extra travel to survive an impact like we saw in this race, I don't know if it does. It just took the hit in a, in a, a place that it uh, it didn't matter. Um, it could easily, it could so easily have uh, plucked a wheel off, just as it did with Stroll's Aston. Um, I think once it's got all its wheels on and it's still going, uh, you know, uh, uh, like Scott said, you, you, anything's possible because it's Alonso. Um, I mean, who else could, you know, be that far up in the air? Um, and uh, still, still be going afterwards. Rejoin last, and then come through all over again. He was well, quite interesting when he talked about it because he said when he had the impact, he wasn't completely sure how far across the track he was. Yeah. So when he got launched, he said, "Actually, I thought it was further over to the left," and not, he thought he was going to have an IndyCar style accident into the fence and sort of spinning round off it. So he was quite relieved when he landed. Well, he did an IndyCar style recovery because obviously the only other person I can think of that would do this would be Marcus Ericsson, who obviously won the Nashville IndyCar race in 2021, having gone up the back of another car. And gone completely airborne, but that was—I remember watching that race. That was utter, utter, utter chaos. And IndyCar is a very different kettle of fish to Formula One, so it's uh, it's obviously it's a bit apples and oranges. But it did remind me of that when 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 I saw that Alonso was not only still going but also still going at a fair rate. I was thinking this is this is ridiculous. The only example I can think of is arguably the most chaotic recent race in IndyCar history. 
And a three-place grid penalty for Lance Stroll for causing an incident. Fair, Mark? I suppose so. If you have to give out penalties, um, yeah. He moved left, but at the same time, I think Alonso was going for the dummy, actually. So I think Alonso had initiated the move left. Lance had responded maybe a little bit late by going left also, but not outrageously so, I didn't think. And then I think it looked like Alonso was then thinking, okay, I'm going to go right then. Um, but it was too late, and I think that was, was I think there was an element of fifty fifty about that accident. Yeah, I think there's an element as well of with the stroll penalty. It's always frowned on the late move, so I think there's a little bit of that. Uh, that and the one thing that was quite interesting is Alonso when he spoke after the race after he'd been to the stewards, he was he was quite conciliatory about it, and I think that's probably partly because he's going to be Lance Stroll's teammate next year. What's the point in in causing problems about it? But he did say it was all fine. I said, well. He did move quite late, though, didn't he? Uh, but Alonso did one of his great exaggerations because he said uh, those movements, one-tenth of a second, you move 200 metres, which was quite impressive. We worked out, Scott, didn't we, how fast, therefore, if if uh, if he was covering 200 metres in a tenth of a second, was that 7,200 kilometres an hour? Yeah, doing? I think it was something like that. I, I, I could, I, We did work it out. I could, I can remember it being around 7,000 kilometres an hour. So that Alpine was, was going some. It was... We were joking, like Lance never stood a chance. Well, no, because well beyond the speed of sound, so he wouldn't have heard it, let alone saw it. So, you know, yeah. How bad's that car in the corners, though? I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, great drive from uh, from Alonso. But Scott, we did not long ago learn that Alonso seventh place actually was an illusion, thanks to Haas successfully protesting Alpine. So what was all that about? Haas basically lodged two protests after the the race, one against uh, Sergio Perez's car and the other against Alonso's car, basically for driving in an unsafe uh, condition. And this is, felt a little bit like doing it to prove a point because three times this year, Kevin Magnussen's been given a, a mechanical flag for driving with um, the front wing end plate broken and therefore flapping around. And Haas have consistently argued that this is not dangerous and they've even i think after the second time it happened they even went to the FAA and said look stop doing this because here's all the data it is not a risk if 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 it's flapping it, it can't fall off well and they were annoyed about it because they'd done that before the singapore one and so they thought actually when it happened in singapore to magnuson he wasn't going to get the yeah exactly flat. well that's what i was going to say so then they were really furious in singapore when after doing this he still got one anyway so I think here they saw that uh, they saw that Perez had the front wing end plate flapping early on, but then that fell off. And then later on in the race, a few few laps from the end, Alonso's um, wing mirror came off. I think as he passed Magnussen as well. So I, that would obviously have been uh, on, on in in Hass's uh, in Hass's scopes. So they did the protest afterwards. The Red Bull one got thrown out. Um, it's there is lacking detail, the FIA's um, decision. But basically what they've said is that because the front wing end plate fell off, completely detached and disappeared off the car, after that point onwards, the front wing was in a safe condition. So I can only assume, have to infer from that, that the FIA, the, the race control were considering or going to eventually give Perez a mechanical warning flag once they'd realised, but it fell off before they could. So that was that. But on Alonso's, it's, I don't know about this as a precedent, but the stewards have basically determined that race control were wrong not to give Alonso a, a mechanical flag, that he should have been forced to, to, to pit and, and, and deal with it because they've determined that it was dangerous not only to be driving with the, the wing mirror broken and flapping, but also to have no mirror on the car at all. But their ire seems to be directed more at race control because Haas apparently made two calls to race control to alert them of the flapping mirror and no action was taken. So they're annoyed at race control, but at the same time they've gone ultimately it's, that it's the team's responsibility to make sure the car's in a safe condition. Alpine didn't do that, so hit Alonso with a um, stop-go penalty converted into a time penalty after the race, which dropped him out of the points. I mean, I don't, I don't know. that I honestly, I kind of see where they're coming from, but... I really feel like this could open a can of worms. Yeah, that drops a uh, that drops Alonso down to fifteenth uh, place in the end, and moved Vettel up to seventh and Magnussen up to eighth. But it's it's a strange one because even without Haas notifying them, you'd have thought race control was looking quite closely at that Alpine, 
given it had just been hurled into a wall. <laughs> so that's a strange thing, and the wing mirror was flapping. So yeah, I, I can understand why they feel it was a little bit of a, a strange one, but a, a, a bit of a shame for Alonso. But, but where do we stand on on, on this, this kind of thing, this after-the-fact penalising someone for having a, a car with broken parts? Well, they've been penalised for race control not doing its job, effectively. And it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because... This does set a precedent for any kind of slightly deranged bit of bodywork or whatever being a problem. Does that mean if someone's wing mirror falls off in future, randomly, that they're always automatically going to get a penalty? I, th- well, I think it means that if your wing mirror gets knocked off, you have to retire. Well, yeah, by definition, that that's the case, isn't it? That, that's the precedent. Or have a new one fitted, however long. Well, I suppose you could do that, yeah. <laughs> We're going to see all sorts of things now being pra- uh, tested in, uh, pra- sorry, practiced in testing at the start of the season. Do you remember a few years ago when... Um, McLaren had to do that steering wheel change for, for 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 Hamilton, and I remember it being explained by the team afterwards. And so this is one of the things that we do occasionally practice in testing. We just hope we never have to do it. I wonder if we're now going to start to see all sorts of weird things being trialed in testing, like rapid wing mirror repairs and um, botched jobs on front wing end plates and that kind of thing. Or we're going to start to hear complaints to race control with people saying, "Diff sounds a bit rattly." I think something fall <laughs> off there. A whole new uh, new area of combat in, uh, in in F1, but also it's significant in that battle for fourth in the constructors' championship. The gap now is six points in Alpine's favour over McLaren. Obviously, they gained from that. They did get an extra point for Ocon thanks to the penalty, but obviously they lost the the points for Alonso. It's also significant in the battle for sixth because it's, it's nudged Aston Martin up another position, hasn't it? So it's just another two points that are taken out of Alfa Romeo. And when you're looking at a battle like that, where there are so few points overall and so few points in it, it's quite a big percentage uh, shift. And on that topic, actually, we should talk about Aston Martin, Mark. One of its most competitive showings of the season at Austin could easily have ended up sixth and seventh at the front of the midfield. That's where they were aiming for early on. We've covered Stroll's demise and we'll get on to Vettel's troubles in a moment. But first, a question from Chris Parrott, who asks, what was the key to Aston Martin's pace this weekend? It's It's been building, actually, because uh, what you've got to remember about the Aston Martin is that it was... Um, its proper car only really came out in Spain because the first one was a disaster and they hurriedly made another one based on a completely different aerodynamic concept. And that car took part in a Grand Prix in a state of uh, the team understanding and uh, levels of preparation that you would normally only see in winter testing. Well, we were speaking to Andy Green the other day and he said it wasn't even really, yeah. it's almost not a launch car, it's it not, was almost exactly. before that. Yeah, exactly. So... You, they, they're starting several races behind, if you like, everybody else, if you if you consider their proper season started at Barcelona. So, yeah, this is just building understanding. Um, yeah, there's been upgrades and, and there's, been, there's been weight reduction like everybody else, but this is really more to do with um, getting a fuller understanding as they've gone on with a car that was um, so different from the original one. And 26 points they've scored in the last... Three races, Aston Martin, and as we mentioned, it could have been much better. Scott, a question from Danny Elliott, who says, Vettel had a great race today. How many laps was he in the lead? Well, he officially led two laps, I can confirm that, his first of the year. Shame about his pit stop. What happened there? Uh, Aston Martin boss Mike Crack, when I spoke to him, didn't have an exact answer for how this happened. But basically, it seems like an alignment issue on the, the front jack, so that when the when the car was lifted, it effectively rolled off slightly to the side, which meant the front left, they had some problems getting it on, but then also, uh, sorry, front getting it off, but then mainly getting it on and then getting the, um, tightening the nut. So they then had to do a jack change, get it back up, uh, sorry, drop it back down and then get it back up again. And then they were able to finish it and then set Vettel on his way. So I can't remember how long that pit stop took, but I remember watching it and thinking, this feels like an absolute eternity. Yeah, it was very, very painful. It dropped him down, I think, at that point to 13th place. And he did uh, do quite a good job to to battle his way back through from there. Had that great last lap battle with Magnussen. This was a good weekend from Vettel. I know qualifying he underachieved a little bit, but showed good fighting spirit, I think. It did, yeah. And that, that last few, those last few corners with, with Magnussen, absolutely on the limit. You know, your car was trying to throw him off the circuit and you just, you, 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 no way he was backing off. He absolutely wanted that place. And you're thinking this is, you know, for a guy that's about to retire in three races time, it's quite, quite impressive level of commitment. I like that move on Albon, the yeah. one around the outside of the, the, the triple apex near the end of the 
nearly near the end of the lap. But basically, just to pick up on what Mark was just saying there about a guy heading into retirement, he's not phoning it in, is he? You you know, the Aston Martin have talked about, and we we would obviously never question this given his character, but they've talked about Vettel's ultimate professionalism and the commitment to the course to the very end and just if anyone needed any proof of this like the way he he is driving in these last few races it shows that I think he's in I think he's enjoying the fact that the car's more competitive he, he's able to, to to race for for better positions again this ultimately still isn't what he really cares about but he's finding motivation in it isn't he and he's he's, he's doing a very very good job of it you you, you can't fault him for his commitment or his uh, execution and he's got the motivation of this great battle for six in the Constructors' Championship. Okay, Aston Martin wants to do more than six, but that would be a really good recovery from them. Only one point now. Alfa Romeo's ahead. And Scott, Alfa Romeo was a genuine top 10 car on pace at Austin. Came away empty-handed again. Now just that one point ahead. How surprised were you that Bottas parked it in the gravel? Um, very. Um, I can't, I don't, I'm not sure if I was quite as surprised as he was. Um, he, he was quite baffled by it. Um, when we spoke to him um immediately well during the race when 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 he was uh coming through the through the mix zone um he did say it was odd and he he said he'd been told by the team that it did seem that there was a a big gust of wind at that point i think you heard a specific number like 25 yeah 25 kilometers an hour more than it than it had been yeah so so bottas did say that but he also said ultimately it was it was his mistake i mean for all the criticism that gets levied at him, and we've visited Valtteri Bottas' Sympathy Corner several times over the years, him just dropping it in the dry is unusual, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things that happens. I mean, ultimately, yes, it's his mistake, but the wind sensitivity is is there. It's been there all weekend as well, the, the, the gusts, and that is a particularly tricky part of the track for that. But yeah, just one of those things that happened, but very badly timed. And Joe Guan Yu couldn't quite get into the points either, which is a shame. Actually, he's been quite quick this weekend. He was actually faster than Bottas in Q2, but had that lap disallowed for a turn 12 track limits violation. He started down in 18th, I think, because he had a, a grid penalty as well. But uh, Joe performed pretty well, didn't have a great strategy, ended up doing the majority of the race on hard compound tyres, which wasn't ideal, but no points for Alfa Romeo. And Mark, we should quickly talk about Alfa Tauri. Yuki Tsunoda ended that long points drought with ninth place, but Pierre Gasly was a very unhappy man after his pair of penalties and the brake glaze problems he had on Saturday. Do you think his irritation is justified? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, the, the, the penalty for the... Um the safety car gap is a bit unfortunate because, you know, as, as he pointed out, that if the guy ahead of you suddenly accelerates, you're, you're right up behind him and he suddenly accelerates, there can be a, just the reaction time can can mean that you get too far behind the, the, the car in front and the safety car. I tend to think those sorts of ones... Penalty should be reserved for people deliberately playing games, yeah. rather than just yeah. something like that—the ebb and flow. Yeah, and it, it also makes it ridiculously complicated to monitor if you're going to have to monitor everybody, every single gap between every single car and every single safety car. Why? Why are we doing that? Why? Why is it necessary to go into that detail? I don't think it is. Yeah, that's not a great uh, thing. I think it's one of those ones where if you've got somebody playing games like Hungary with Red Bull when Vettel backed up the field when Weber was leading that was a bit cynical and rightly it was penalised but yeah I think I can understand why Gasly was annoyed although his patience clearly is wearing thin with that AlphaTauri team I get it I get where it comes from because they've they've underachieved this season there have been a lot of weekends where problems outside of his control have, have held him back there's been strategic errors like in Singapore there's been that timing error in qualifying that cost him a shot of being best of the rest in, in Monaco some engine problems, etc. So it has been difficult and quite trying for them, but he, he's clearly quite happy to be out the door at the end of the year. Yeah, clearly. And um, yeah, there's a frustration coming through. Um, and that's, yeah, you know, that, that it, it, it's understandable, but it, it, it's also something that um, other teams will be taking note of. And it's, it's not, it's not a good thing to have associated with you in professionally. So, um, yeah, it's something he needs to watch. Yeah, you get where it's coming from, but it's not necessarily constructive. It's it's not a quick vent and then off you go. So to be a little bit careful on that, but at least you can sympathise with where it's coming from. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, as always, we'll finish off by working through some of the Race Members Club questions. Thanks to everyone who sent one in. Mark, first a question for you from Mark O'Neill. With Max clinching the driver's title last race and Red Bull with a constructor's title at Cota, will they now prioritise Checo or use Max to help Checo in the remaining races? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because if they're, they're, they're now targeting getting Checo up to second, what, what better way of doing that than to try and uh, get him to win his home Grand Prix next week? And um, whether whether Max is prepared to buy into that plan, I, I, don't, I don't know, but maybe he is. He, you know, if you look, Back on um, Spain, for example, Max couldn't have won that Grand Prix with, without Checo's help. Well, you know, once he'd, he'd once Max had um, gone off into the Turn Four gravel, he really needed Checo's help to win that race to come back through. Um, so, so he sort of owed one. So, what what better way than um, to 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 give him to give him his home Grand Prix if 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 at all possible? I mean, it's a bit presumptive to to um, think that they, that that's a that. Is obviously doable because it could turn out that the, the the Ferraris are, you know, quick enough to to prevent that. But um, if if that opportunity is there, I don't see why they wouldn't. You know, to to perfectly legitimate um, aim to try and, you know, get the guy that needs the points the most um, to, to to put him in front of the other guy. Yeah, and a, a Perez win in Mexico would be great. I mean, it's possible he could win it without any assistance. That's always a mm. possibility. But yeah. I think it would make sense for them to maybe be accommodating, certainly in Mexico, because I think that would be brilliant for the uh, for the race. And he's he's played a really important role. I think Perez, yes, he's had some very difficult times, but he has picked up the points. And as Scott said earlier, he's got a chance of being the first Red Bull driver to to complete a one-two in the drivers' championship. So for you, Scott, question from Thomas Knight, who says, while Norris is fighting brilliantly and really taking it to Alpine, how frustrating is it for him and McLaren for it to be a one-man challenge as Ricardo looks further off the pace with every weekend? I think it's more of a frustration for McLaren than the Norris, because honestly, like I know that Ricardo's reputation has taken a beating over the last 18 months, but it's because of Norris. The longer that Ricardo struggles, really, and the the, the the worse these gaps are, the the better Norris looks because he's just absolutely destroying him. Um, but for McLaren, it's massively problematic because Alpine has just collectively um, just underachieved at times this year. Um, both their drivers have got almost identical number of points, but because of reliability problems or whatever, they've they've, they've lost a lot. Norris has I can't really think of any times this year Norris has really dropped points or not scored when he should have or had McLaren related problems and this was a really good weekend from him again yeah exactly whereas the the missing McLaren points in the championship are just almost all on the the other cars side on on Daniel's side so while Norris is obviously quite often played up the fact that it shouldn't be a fight Alpine should be up the road 
I would argue that if Ricardo was scoring points at a rate that was more appropriate, that McLaren should should be up the road. So that that's where I think the main frustration will lie. Yeah, and I think Ricardo now has pretty much accepted it's not going to happen. There's only three races left. He was saying at the end of the race, you know, I'm not going to hope or expect or think. And he's tried everything he can multiple times to make it work, and it hasn't. So I think he's. I'm not going to say he's checked out, but let's put it this way: I don't think he's going to be unhappy to get Abu Dhabi over and done with and move on to other things. This would have been a really particularly painful one as well because he came away from Suzuka with a sneaking suspicion that actually the the upgrade to the to, to the McLaren might have helped him a little bit, just sort of given him a bit more feel and, and made things feel a bit normal. He was hoping that would be confirmed this weekend, but if anything, it's just been emphatically disproven. Next up for you, Mark, is a question from Jack Aitken. Presumably not that Jack Aitken, but it may be. Either way, we're very happy to answer the question, which is, I've loved seeing Fernando Alonso battling at the front of the midfield this season, but Aston Martin's pace today has given me confidence he may continue to pop up at the pointy end next year. What are the strengths of the 2022 Aston, and would the car's characteristics suit Fernando's driving style? I think in terms of um, car traits and driving style, uh, it doesn't really matter. Alonso's probably the most adaptive driver on the grid. He doesn't really have a, a driving style. He's had several distinctive driving styles through his career, um, but it, it, it's just whatever is required to sort of get the car to do what he, what he wants it to do. Um, so I think he can drive anything. It's it, it more of a question of how competitive will that car be. Um, I, I don't think it's to do with its, its traits in particular. I think it's just aerodynamically where's it going to be where's it going to stack up against the likes of Alpine against McLaren against that you know it's pr- pretty very pretty serious teams in that midfield that upper midfield um so yeah it's 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 got great ambitions and it's um, invested heavily and it's had some very you know impressive uh, recruitments but it's still the it's still got to be brought together and you know it, it's making progress back end of this year so that's encouraging but um yeah yeah I'd, I'd still not be confident of saying it's definitely going to go in and pull away from alpine or mclaren these are serious teams so um let's see i don't know Alonso will certainly be quick in it. Whatever happens. Next question on a similar topic, Scott, is from Liam Robinson, who says, do you believe in light of his incredible performance today that Fernando Alonso would be able to fight for wins and maybe even a title if he had the car? He consistently shows that he belonged in the top tier along with Verstappen and Hamilton and finishing P7 after his Alpine turned into a Boeing 747 surely shows this. Yeah, I have to agree with, uh, with, with Liam and short answer, but not out of disrespect to the question, just the, what more is there to say? I, there is no evidence to suggest that Alonso would not be capable of fighting for wins and a title in, in the right car. He's clearly, I don't know if he's absolutely at his peak and as good as he was in 2012, like he often has pointed out this year. But if he's a, if he's a far, if he's a, a drift of that peak, he's, it's a drift by a negligible amount. So he's absolutely good enough to fight for titles. Next up for you, Mark, from Danny Elliott. Why do we have a non-enthusiastic checkered flag waver in Tim Cook from Apple? Clearly wasn't interested, and I was a touch annoyed watching his pathetic attempts to wave the finish flag. Just go back to a normal finish procedure with a standard checkered flag. Why do Formula One even bother with celebrity finishes? Well, I'm glad you got that off your chest. Um, <laughs> doesn't get me quite so angry to see an expressionless guy waving the flag, but at least he waved it at the right car, unlike Pele a few years ago. And, you know, Pelle's a legend, so you're like, whatever, I, I, I don't really mind. I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> I'm not as angry as Daniele is, but I did think it was rubbish. <laughs> it wasn't, I mean, it's it's this weird part of F1, this kind of obsession with the celebrities or or, fi- or figures of great stature in other fields. It's just not that relevant. Well, I don't, well, I don't understand. Like, I saw a few people getting excited about this, about him being here. Why... Why does it matter that the se- like the, the 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 boss of a company is here? I, I don't I don't understand. Well, that. he's significant. Obviously. No, no, I get Apple, that. But like, Apple's, lots of people are significant. Apple's He's not the president. People wouldn't be listening to us necessarily in the way they are with it, with Apple. So no question there. But yeah, just it it just seemed a little bit odd. I'm sure there's better things he could be uh, uh, be spending his his. his time. I'm sure, there's better things he can do as well. Yeah, no, no, uh, no question. That's uh, waving a checkered flag is probably not. Is that why? Is that why my new iPhone's rubbish? Is is his standard of uh, of, of phone making now is uh, 
Is it is it, is his standard of phone making as bad as his standard of flag waving? So he just gone through the motions with his business, and the way he is, like, and then the flag waving. Is that how enthusiastic they are, at Apple? <laughs> My Apple phone's brilliant. I'm really happy with that. Have I've you got a personal sponsorship, Apple? Because you leapt to Tim Cook's defence a second ago, so something's up here. I'm just knowing <laughs> you're, on the, you're on the payroll. I, I get it. I just don't want this podcast to stop getting through to people who may listen to it for whatever uh, reason. If we, if we, if we, dis- <laughs> if we disappear from iTunes, I'm really sorry. And you can blame me. <laughs> Absolutely. But no, my, uh, my iPhone's doing a good job. Anyway, uh, Scott, now we've got a pair of questions from regular questioner Christopher Partridge, but with a difference. So these are from his kids. So first up is from James Partridge, who is 10 years old. Who says, hi, James here. Do you watch The Lollipop Man? We do, and we love him. Also, do you think that Mick Schumacher will be on the grid next year? <laughs> hi, James. Um, I I don't watch The Lollipop Man, but I but I am aware of it. I have uh, I've 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 seen it shared on, on social media a couple of times, and I did I did look it up when because um, because uh, Ed, when we were discussing beforehand, you you made me aware of this question, so I wanted to have a little look, check that it was what I thought it was was and it is um I can see why you like it it looks it's 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 quite a fun fun little way to to follow formula 1 yeah I'm going to be checking it out I hadn't heard of it before this question so thanks for the recommendation James and on the second question uh Mick Schumacher I hope that you're not a, a Mick fan because I don't really want to disappoint you but I, I I really do feel like Mick's chances of being on the grid are are dwindling this this was um this was uh, uh a very Mick Schumacher weekend, wasn't it? A quite pointless performance in qualifying and then a quite a good drive in the Grand Prix and then something went awry so he didn't get the result that he probably deserved from it. It just felt like a bit Mick all round. So unfortunately, I just feel like Haas isn't totally convinced by him and unfortunately, he's running out of time to to make his case and change their mind. Yeah, he got some damage when he went through the debris field from the stroll, Alonso crash so that hobbled him he was in the mix for a points finisher at that point but yeah that uh, was a bit unfortunate and mark the second question is from hannah who informs us she's chris's daughter will the result of max's championship be affected by the amount of money red bull spent last year is this overspend a major or minor issue that's a big question it is hannah that's a big question um i think there will be probably um, penalties coming but i don't think it will be um, applied to the points that they've scored this year. No, I think it's more likely to be applied to uh, restrictions in the wind tunnel time and things like that, and probably um, uh, a money fine. Um, so, no, I don't think their points will be affected this year. Yeah, and I think although technically it's called a, a minor breach, it is a major issue in this particular case. So it's a it's a big talking point, but we'll we'll soon have the full details of it. So. Uh, We'll be able to give a slightly better appraisal of exactly how how serious it is. And Scott, a connected question from Jeremy Husted. He says, could you please comment on some of the ludicrous stories regarding deducting championship points from Red Bull? It's necessary to have a hard cap, but the level of hypocrisy towards Red Bull racing from other teams and certain outlets is overkill. Thanks and keep up the neutral, fair reporting. Well, I appreciate that, Jeremy, but this all this does is just prove that nobody should ever read anything else and should just go to, to, to the race.com and not forget the hyphen. And then you'll be absolutely fine. You'll be able to read everything that you need to know. Um, on a more serious note... Moving on to the less smug bit of the answer. Yeah, exactly. I was just doing your bit for you to just make sure that people don't don't forget the hyphen. Um, the, the, the serious thing is that there has been a lot of... Um, there has been a lot of emotion around this this story and there has been a lot of, um, I think, misdirection might be the wrong word, but just slightly lazy characterizations of things on, on both sides, sometimes underplaying what has been done and sometimes overplaying it and calling for certain things. It is absolutely true that some people in Formula One have talked about what Red Bull has done as meriting a deduction of championship points, which... If you did that for 2021 for Max Verstappen, would impact the the championship outcome. It, it, it or could impact the championship outcome. But the fact is that when at, at least I hope that it's taken this way. When when we've referenced like upper limits of things, for example, like the five percent that it, the five percent that a, a minor breach refers to, meaning up to around seven million dollars. Like we are not trying to imply that that is what Rebel Overs meant. We are just trying to frame it so that people understand what a minor breach can be. So yeah, I think that around this, there has been a bit of um, people being carried away at 
at, at, at certain times. Uh, the, the main thing is to just try and cut through some of the hyperbole and the sort of extremism that, you know, gets people's attention and, and plays to that emotion a little bit and just try to understand this story for what it is, which is a very serious one that is being taken very seriously and does have implications for, for Formula One in 2021, 2022 and beyond. And all you can do really is take all of that at face value and then we will obviously try and cut through the nonsense as best we can. And we will be doing that when the FIA does come out with um, whatever its accepted breach agreement is with Red Bull, if indeed that is entered into. And if it goes to a bigger trial beyond that, then stick with us because we will, we'll go with it for as long as it lasts. And I think the key thing to note is if it is an accepted breach agreement, there cannot be a points deduction. The regulations list that some of the penalties are available, but the points deduction is off the table as is the reduction in future cost cap spending. So you are into what Mark was talking about earlier, the reduction of aero testing and that kind of thing in terms of your punishment or a fine that is not part of the uh, uh, the cost cap. So it's looking like points deductions won't be happening and indeed cannot happen unless there is no ABA reached between the, the two parties, and I suspect it will in the end. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell, Malm and Mark Hughes, for your insights. Head to therace.com and definitely don't forget the hyphen, as there's loads to read there in terms of the fallout from the race and looking ahead to the upcoming Mexican Grand Prix as well. Also, if you haven't already done so, do download our new app. Just search for The Race Media on your app store of choice. Check out our other podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast, MotoGP and Bring Back V10s, and also have a look at our videos on YouTube. We're now going to head towards Mexico City, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the Mexican Grand Prix. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.